Welcome to the Living Well Podcast from Morneau Chappelle. I'm your host, Mark Hennick. The Living Well Podcast is brought to you by WellCan, a free mental health and well-being resource offered by Morneau Chappelle. At wellcan.ca and on the WellCan app in the App Store, you'll find information, assessments, and resources to support your mental health. WellCan resources are supplied by Morneau Chappelle's expert clinicians, as well as through partnerships with some of the biggest companies from across Canada and around the world. And now back to the Living Well podcast and your host, Mark Hannick. A new study published in the Journal of Personality and Individual Differences gives us some early evidence that conspiracy theories about COVID-19 can have a negative impact on individuals who believe them. The research shows that COVID-19 conspiracy beliefs predict heightened levels of mental distress, and those who report believing in COVID-19 conspiracies tended to have higher levels of anxiety. This study got me to thinking about the impact that not only explicit conspiracy theories have on our mental and emotional health, but also on the impact on our well-being and more from more everyday information, uh, including disinformation and the massaging of facts. How does this impact our mental health? So to explore this, I'm joined by Dr. Sander Vanderlinden. Dr. Vanderlinden is a professor of social psychology uh, in society at the University of Cambridge. He's also the director of the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab. And if he had any spare time, he's also the editor in chief of the Journal of Environmental Psychology. Dr. Sander Vanderlinden, thank you for joining me today. Pleasure to be on the show. Uh, I'm also going to bring in uh, Timothy Caulfield. Uh, he's the Canada Research Chair in Health, Law, and Policy, a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health, and the Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. Uh, he's the host and co-producer of uh, User's Guide to Cheating Death on Netflix and 60 other countries. He's the author of a couple of national bestsellers, including his most recent book, Relax, Damn It! I'm pretty sure it's said with that kind of emphasis, A User's Guide to the age of anxiety. <laughs> Timothy Caulfield, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Mark. And one more guest. We got a really big show today is Kevin Newman. Uh, he was the chief anchor and executive editor for the Global National Evening News Broadcast in Canada. And then he was host and managing editor uh, of the weekly investigative program W5 on CTV. Kevin, thank you for joining me. I feel like an underachiever now. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly. Well, Kevin, actually, let's start with you since, you know, you were on the front lines of, of misinformation, disinformation, of the manipulation of facts for all of your journalists career. Um, so from your perspective now, you're retired, but you're still an active uh, watcher of, of uh, mm-hmm. news media with your critical eye, keenly honed critical eye. So from your perspective, what are, the, what are the dominant false messages, misleading messages that people are being flooded with today? Uh, well, they come in waves, um, especially when it deals with COVID. So it's, like, it's almost like a game of whack-a-mole. You can uh, spend all your time trying to debunk the disinformation, and then suddenly there's a, a whole raft of new ones. So, you know, I did a search, for instance, uh, this morning about, like, what are the latest ones? Well, you know, the latest ones are that uh, the vaccine, and they tend to be around the vaccine now that it's being deployed in so many places, the vaccine causes a 366% increase in miscarriages, or that the swab that they use before they give you the vaccine uh, creates uh, cancer. And and so, you know, by the time that those develop enough body that they sort of pop their head out of the, out of the ground, um, 
you know, a lot of journalists are finding themselves not so much reporting the news anymore, but trying to correct uh, disinformation, misinformation. And the difference there is that disinformation is intentional. Misinformation is just not complete. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, that never was as much of the, of the job before, but because of all the challenges, um, uh, that people have to believing what's in mainstream media, mainstream media is spending a lot more time trying to justify what's truth and what isn't. Sure. So now is this a lack of scientific literacy or a lack of critical thinking ability? You know, you're a journalist, you've been trained in how to discern the difference between truth and lies. I assume, is that not the case for everybody? I, I think it's more tribalism. I, I think, you know, people want a set of beliefs. Uh, they are ill curious, perhaps. And so when things reinforce what they're feeling and what their opinions are, uh, they tend to gravitate toward them. I mean, not very long ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, um, I think people were generally uh, more curious, willing to listen. And I don't think people are listening to the same degree anymore. So some of it is, is a function of, of our information society, but I think a lot of it is, a, is a human nature. Mm. I think there's a tendency, and I guess it's been well documented, uh, to glorify the past that never was. Is it any different today uh, in terms of what people are willing to believe and, and what they're not? Uh, or has it always been this way? No, I think there's an, well, the difference now is that there is an ecosystem of disinformation. Uh, so there was a report, a uh, study done at a McGill University that looked in the Canadian context of, you know, um, what's happening to the spread of disinformation on COVID in Canada. And, and the answer was that for the first few months, there was uh, largely cohesion in that people saw it as a real threat, that they were adopting their, be- that they were adapting their behavior. Um, but over time, that cohesion um, seems to be giving way. And the reason is uh, because we live right next door and we speak the same language as America. And, and America has not had that cohesion. It has obviously had uh, a lot of polarity. And, and, and what has happened in America is that disinformation ecosystem has been broadened by mainstream media, some of the, uh, particularly the right-wing media in the United States, and also by right-wing politicians. So in Canada, you know, uh, there, that doesn't exist. So you don't have, um, you know, that uh, disinformation ecosystem that is attached to uh, people who have power or, or, or television or, or, or radio hosts to the same degree. And so what they found at McGill was that, like, over time, more and more uh, uh, disinformation sources from the United States have been filtering up into Canada. And so, um, you know, if you if you look at, at at what Canadians follow on Twitter with COVID, um, almost I think it was six to one, it's American uh, Twitter accounts, not Canadian Twitter accounts, and though and that is uh, is growing over time. Interesting. I want to bring in uh, Dr. Sander Vanderlinden on this point, uh, Sander. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the media landscape in the UK, which is where you're based, of course. And if you're seeing what the McGill study and what Kevin has has just mentioned about um, the the influence of American media, is there some difference there? Is is disinformation impacting the UK population in similar ways? Well, yeah, I do think we're seeing broadly similar trends. Uh, I think some of the the part of disinformation that intersects with political polarization is maybe 
slightly less pronounced in the UK, but you see a lot of spillover that a lot of the issues that were not initially polarized uh, in the UK, such as, you know, fake news around um, self-isolation uh, and other COVID policies now become increasingly more and more politicized uh, along um, broadly uh, liberal conservative lines, which, you know, feeds into the discussions uh, about fake news. But we've We've had fake news and disinformation that's been influential from the beginning in the UK. We've had some of the first reports here about people um, setting phone masks ablaze uh, because they believe that um, 5G is somehow uh, responsible uh, for the uh, um, spread of the coronavirus. Um, and so that, you know, that's over 50 phone masks have been set ablaze here. Uh, people vandalize things. So I, I do think, you know, you have to look at it at a population level. But overall, I do think the UK has seen its fair share of disinformation about COVID-19, just like many other countries. And I think the relative degree of political polarization that you see in places like the Commonwealth and uh, the United States, uh, which I think mm -hmm. is relatively higher than uh, in, in, let's say, in continental Europe, where you also see some you know, right-wing populism uh, that's that's on the rise, but not, I think, not to the same degree as, uh, as as we've seen here. And I think Canada is an interesting contrast to some extent because there has been relative, you know, consensus on some of the COVID measures in Canada as opposed to the United States. Now, you're a social psychologist, of course, and I, just as you're speaking, I can't help but think of this idea of the loneliness epidemic, of the, certainly the isolation that we've been facing through the last year uh, plus of lockdowns. Um, Kevin mentioned tribalism and social cohesion. Is there something to do with maybe the social connectedness of being in a group of people who have fixed false beliefs, who believe in disinformation? Do they feel like they're part of a club? Does it serve some need, do you think? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think when you look at some of the psychological motivations by, you know, behind why people espouse conspiracy theories, you know, part of it uh, has to do uh, with what we call relational motives. So, you know, the, the need to connect and define ourselves as part of belonging to other groups uh, of, of people. So I think when people feel marginalized and they've been cut off from society and you're isolated, that actually heightens people's propensity to seek out uh, connections elsewhere. And if you already feel marginalized, if you already have a propensity to, to sort of drift towards some of these ideas, then, you know, finding another group of people online who are completely agreeing with you and supporting what you're saying, and it feels like you found a, an online community, sort of an echo chamber, if you will, um, uh, in which you can reverberate your own your own opinions and, and become more and more disenfranchised in terms of the information diet that you're both consuming and sharing. So I, I do think that's happening for, um, for some people. I think particularly people who are already susceptible a little bit to engaging with this type of content. But uh, on the whole, I think the you know relative isolation um, is forcing everyone to spend perhaps more time online uh, and, and getting confused about content. I mean, I sometimes have family members reaching out to me confused over, you know, what, what appear to be disinformation articles. So, you know, I do think that plays a role. So this, I mean, the piece around family and friends, I think, is important, certainly for our well-being, uh, that it, potentially these types of conversations, somebody believes something very strongly that whether or not it's even false just creates fractures or rifts within relationships, within families. Are you seeing this as having a, a major impact on people's well-being as well, these uh, uh, political differences? Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, I've not seen systematic sort of peer-reviewed evidence of this, but, you know, anecdotally looking at, at what's happening, I've seen lots of individuals who, who are now refraining from talking to family members because they can't have reasonable conversations about a lockdown. I've seen people shouting, and even within my own social circles, I've seen people disengage because they think their family is not abiding by COVID 
uh, uh, lockdown restrictions because they're not paying attention to the evidence, because people feel that you're putting other people at risk, people becoming annoyed with the, uh, with the lockdown and, and sharing articles that appear to be disinformation. So I do think it can cause a lot of conflict with the, you know, amongst friends and, and family. In fact, I'm part of WhatsApp groups of, of, of you know, childhood friends who are constantly sharing uh, information that I think is in fact quite, quite you know, dangerous to some extent. Uh, and you know, you have to have those uncomfortable conversations, which is not great for you know maintaining uh, uh, and sustaining friendships, uh, especially when you're not able to do it in person, which can alleviate some of the awkwardness and um, you know misinterpretations of of what you might feel or say at a, at a given point. So I, I do broadly think that this is feeding into you know negative negative conversations that people have with friends and family. Now, what about the mental health impacts on the individual themselves? You know, uh, there's been there's been study after study uh, showing that people who spend all their time online uh, that are algorithmically being drawn into these uh, uh, webs of of reinforcing their own potentially false beliefs uh, that they tend to be unhappier, that they're more anxious, that they're more depressed. Um, so, so what in in your research and in in your work, your line of work, have you seen as the the direct impact on people's mental health of uh, engaging in disinformation. Well, I should say that I'm not a, a clinical psychologist, so I don't like to make too many inferences about uh, people's, you know, mental health and 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 uh, you know to to what extent this is a, a clinical sort of disorder. But more broadly, I think what is well known is that conspiracy theories, for example, tend to feed into uh, anxiety and negative emotions and worry that people have about the world. So, um, you know, one of the, the key sort of motives for why people believe in conspiracy theories is to, to try to reduce anxiety about the future, about uncertainty, about what might be happening that's uncomfortable. And one way that people cope with that sort of negative information is by espousing narratives that seem much simpler, much much more comforting uh, and much easier to process. So, for example, you know, instead of thinking that, um, you know, you're at risk of, uh, of a dangerous virus or that, you know, climate change is catastrophic, uh, you might um, put your you know your faith into a theory into a theory that says that those things aren't really happening because that's a much more comforting you know comforting way to to try to to, to cope with uh, some of the scary things that are happening in the world. So I do think that it's you know that it, it feeds into uh, how people consume information. But I personally haven't done research on how these narratives uh, you know directly affect people's mental health. Timothy Caulfield, I want to bring you into the conversation now. Um, you've been a champion for science literacy. Uh, so I really where I think you're most valuable in this conversation is how do we counteract all this, right? Is it do we need to be calling out uh, more instances of disinformation that we see? Well, I, I think uh, first of all, I agree with everything that that I've heard already. I think everyone's you know uh, touching on some really important themes, and I, and I and I think the spread of misinformation, which is the broad umbrella term I use to capture fake news, disinformation, misinformation, you know, it's going to require a society to come at it from absolutely every angle. I mean, this is a very complex, ever-changing phenomenon. So uh, yes, we're going to need uh, stronger regulatory approaches. We're going to need better science literacy. We're going to need to empower information uh, consumers to have the tools to tease out what's real and what's not real. But I also think we need to to get on uh, social media. And uh, research tells us that this is largely, uh, not entirely, but largely where much of the misinformation resides. And the, it's the kind of misinformation that's having the biggest impact. We need to get on uh, social media and counter misinformation with using evidence-based strategies to do 
exactly that. And, and the good news is, you know, even though it doesn't feel like it, even though it doesn't feel like it, Mark, you know, it does work. Debunking does work. A lot of people don't like the term debunking. I get that. It feels unilateral. It feels combative. And I sort of, you know, I, I get that because you really do want to have conversations. But, mm. but uh, broadly speaking, uh, these strategies can have an impact. It's not going to fix stuff overnight. You know, that this, as I said, it's complex. We're talking about moving the needle, but, but these strategies, these strategies can work. And I want to go back to, you know, the, the, the concept of this chaotic information environment that's kind of freaking us out. You know, there is a growing body of evidence to support that. I know Sandra knows this, this well, that, you know, it really can have, have an impact on, on not only our, our, um, we want to use the right term here, our stress levels, our anxieties levels, uh, uh, but also on how we we uh, perceive the content and whether we share it or not. Now, again, as Sandra will know this better than I I do, it's often hard to study this well from a methodological perspective to get really robust data. But I think there's a body of evidence now emerging to support that. One of my colleagues, Gordon Pennycook, who's an experimental um, psychologist, has done really interesting work work that's been replicated in other labs that that talks about you know the, just encouraging, nudging people to pause before mm -hmm. they they share content can reduce the spread uh, of misinformation and part of that is you know the social media is a frantic information space right i mean it, it really isn't designed to encourage reflection right it's on the contrary so if we can just nudge people to to reflect a little bit there for example there's a study down in the U us where they just invited people to read the headline and think about it you know that that even that amount of reflection can slow the spread uh, of misinformation, mm. but that's just one strategy. We're gonna have to, Mark. We're gonna have to come at this from every, every angle. So on that front, then, I mean, many social media or the biggest social media platforms, of course, Twitter and Facebook, uh, have started to introduce these kinds of, it seems, nudges. I didn't know that this was based in research before, but now, uh, and I think it's worldwide, before you share something, if you haven't actually read it first, it flags that for you. It tells you maybe you should read this before you share it. Um, it it's probably too early yet, but do you think this will actually make a difference in, in turning the tide? Uh, turning the tide, uh, you know, I, I don't know if if it'll turn the tide, but it, but it, it might nudge us in the, in in the right direction. Uh, one thing that we do need, look, this uh, for sure, the social media platforms have got to have to do more. Uh, they have to do more, uh, and they have to do it more quickly. Um, they have to respond to this misinformation. But this really is a big, you know, putting back on sort of my <laughs> my policy hat. Uh, this is a a, a real challenge for liberal democracies, right? I mean, we have to remember what we're asking. We're asking these private actors, uh, the social media platforms, to make unilateral decisions about what we see. And, and I recognize that really is a big a big cha challenge. You know, ideally, you'd want some independent, this isn't going to happen, by the way, ideally, you'd want some independent entity uh, that ha had oversight over these platforms that was accountable to, to citizens. That's not going to happen, right? But, but uh, but what we can do is we can try to make sure that whatever steps are taking are evidence-based. And not everything they do has really robust evidence to it. They, it also can have unintended consequences. Um, you know, for, there has been some research, for example, to show, you know, you put those flags on them that say this isn't true or, you know, watch it. Does that imply for the, for the information consumer that the other stuff is accurate, right? You know, th those kinds of unintended consequences, which you wouldn't want, right? That's not the implication mm. that's made. You know, what is the impact of deplatforming? You know, there was some information around deplatforming Trump that it would, did have a good impact on the information system, but does it further polarize the discourse as Kevin pointed out earlier? So it is, it is complex. It's like squeezing a balloon, right? Is it, is it going to 
Um, is it going to rise in, in, in other areas? Having said all that, I absolutely think we do need to think of clever ways that we can, you know, clever tools that we can use on social media in order to, to combat misinformation, you know, redirects, flags, all those things can be, can be helpful, especially if they're evidence-based, if, you know, if they're, if they're done, they're done well. But, but getting on social media also, I think, is, you know, countering misinformation quickly, accurately with credible voices. It may not feel like it, it may not feel like it, but that's also a really important tool. And, you know, as you know, one of the ones we're focusing on. But the well, interesting thing is it's getting more, much more sophisticated. I mean, even as they are able to flag the obvious stuff, uh, more and more of the disinformation has what appear to be experts uh, supporting yeah. it and has uh, what appear to be political figures supporting it. So mm -hmm. even myself as a journalist, I have to work uh, extra hard to spot the, the, the fact that is unattributed in stories because they're surrounding them by other related attributed facts. So it's, um, you know, um, I remember in the last election campaign in Canada, we were watching it very, very closely. And, you know, there didn't seem to be as much dis misinformation in that campaign. But um, the, the, the truth was it was just a little bit more clever. And it came mm -hmm. from sources that looked like um, they could be verified. Yeah, Kevin, now, Kevin, I think this is a really important important point. And there's a little bit of research to back this up. You know, this is the sort of the normalization of misinformation. So uh, these people are nimble, right? So they'll embed a bit of misinformation in a story about sports, uh, a story about entertainment, and they'll just drop some anti-vax rhetoric. We, we've studied this in the context of unproven therapies and, and other other areas. And, and it real this normalization of misinformation is a real problem because you know plays to your availability bias because you, you you're going to remember that bit of misinformation maybe a celebrity even said it it's also much more difficult to regulate as you highlight uh, we did a study on immune boosting which you know that's not going to trigger um, Facebook to shut it down that's not going to trigger um, you know it's a maybe it's Tom Brady talking about immune boosting right. But the implication is that you can fight this naturally, right? And it becomes yeah, much more D. difficult yeah. to to cat, you know, get get that get at that kind of misinformation. So, really important point. Kevin, what do you think is the motive here? Is it that um, d little nuggets of disinformation have found their way into otherwise credible stories just because it's part of the cultural ether? Uh, or is there an actual, maybe cynical motive here where people are planting them within uh, credible stories? Uh, I think that, I think that the both is true, and I'd add a third one that there are you know foreign governments that are interested in undermining our ability to uh, um, to vaccinate um, because it uh, obviously puts us into situations where we're locking down on the time and it further weakens our economy and our social cohesion. Um, but I think that there is um, what I mean. It's part of an overall sort of anti-elite, anti-institutional uh, push that's been going on for some time now, uh, but it's sort of reached its apex and perhaps its most dangerous apex uh, with, with, uh, with the coronavirus crisis. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are frustrated and who um, uh, believe that um, their research is equal to the research done by professional researchers or that their journalism is equal to the verification done by professional journalists, doctors, politicians. For some reason, and, and other people on this panel have a better insight into this, but for some reason, um, expertise is uh, lost, it's losing its value. Mm. Sander, 
how do ideas catch on through social systems? Is it primarily through top-level authoritative messaging, you know, your, your Timothy Caulfield's correcting the record? Or is it in the house, uh, you know, your, your partner saying, hey, I just read this thing on Facebook, you should believe this. Is that the contagion of disinformation or where does it come from? Well, I think it's both. And, you know, I think as somebody said, most of it comes from from social media, or at least the bulk of it. But um, uh, a lot of a lot of it is also done through the interpersonal spread. So, you know, through WhatsApp groups and, and family members. But I think what you know, if you look at the studies of what makes content goes go viral, you often see that it's you know content that is emotional in nature and content that uses moral terms to get people riled up about things. And we have a study forthcoming where we looked at millions of, of data points on both Facebook and Twitter. And in addition to both moral and emotional language. What we found was one of the best predictors, actually, of um, retweets and reactions uh, is derogatory uh, mentions of the outgroup. So if you're not in a particular mm-hmm. group and you mention another group in a negative light, that gets a lot of traction on social media platforms. And so it provides a, a perverse incentive almost uh, to talk about other people in a negative way because that's what's creating engagement on those platforms and that's how they make money. Um, and so that, you know, I think that plays a, a big role in it. And I mean, Kevin, you probably know this better than any, anybody. If it bleeds, it leads, right? Is this, again, is this new? Uh, no, it is. It is very much human nature. It's, it's like people will, uh, you know, they watch a lot of NASCAR to watch the cars crash. Um, and so, yeah, no, I don't think it, I, I don't think that part of it is new. Um, what, what might be new is that there is an intent to, um, uh, to elevate uh, the, the person's ego who is um, engaged in disinformation. I mean, if I look at my own circle, um, the guys, and they do seem to be mostly guys, and they are older, the ones who feel the least amount of power seem to be the most aggressive in feeding theories uh, that you know uh, challenge what's, what's going on. Timothy Caulfield, I want to give the last word to you. How do we... Uh, tame the, the, our, our anxiety in this age of anxiety? How do we relax, damn it? Uh, I, I do think part of it is, uh, this is real, real, ridiculously straightforward, but I, I think part of it is stepping back. I, I really do. I, I think it's taking a break from from the noise. Um, and so that means on a on sort of a micro level by if you see something, you know, don't react immediately. You know, the, the work that Gordon and David Rand and others have done about, you know, pausing before you share. But I also think more broadly, you know, you know, take a break from the noise at night. <laughs> you know, don't, you know, step back from all of the information that's constantly bombarding us about the pandemic. I think it gives you an opportunity uh, to reflect, uh, to turn the temperature down and perhaps to make better information decisions. Timothy Caulfield, Dr. Sander Vanderlinden, uh, Kevin Newman, thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Mark. Pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Living Well Podcast. Mark Hennick is our host and executive producer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the show. There's no cost involved. You just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating to let us know how we're doing. For more information about the show and the WellCan Project, visit wellcan.ca. The Living Well Podcast is produced for Morneau Chappelle by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford. <laughs>